would you be willing to break the filibuster in order to get this passed? I'm not ready to destroy our government. Joe Manchin, you're not ready to destroy our government? Just happy to let the Republicans do it for you? From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO and Cottage Grove, KEPW and Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of the Brad Blog, uh, but they've got construction issues today. So you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com. And really, Brad and Desi picked a great week to tear up the concrete around their studio. I know it wasn't their doing, but Friday just reinforced my worst fears. And the bottom line is that our capital was attacked from within, and the Republican Party officially now stands with the attackers. Oh, we got a lot of news to get to today. Breaking news. <laughs> and I wish Brad was here to do it, uh, but I'll do my best to walk you through what transpired. And it's not pretty. Now, before I tell you how the Senate minority leader used the strongest possible language to get his caucus to filibuster a January 6th commission, let me remind you of what Mitch McConnell said the night of the insurrection while he was still Senate Majority Leader. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. Hmm. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. And having that belief was a foreseeable Consequence, foreseeable consequence of the growing crescendo of false statements, mm-hmm. conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole, hyperbole, which the defeated president kept shouting into the largest megaphone on planet Earth. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Yes, those words came out of Mitch McConnell's mouth the night of the insurrection. So after they were all rushed out of the chamber because the rioters were breaking down the doors 
possibly to kill them. They came back and that's what Mitch McConnell said. He knows all of that. He knows every word that he uttered that night was true. And that's why, I guess, Mitch McConnell and the rest of the cowardly party, nothing grand about it anymore, did what they did. Because they're afraid that dear leader Donald Trump will put them out of their jobs. But really, he's not dear leader anymore. He lost, despite the gaslighting that they're trying to do to the nation. Donald Trump lost, and he lost the popular vote by over 7 million votes. Um, His popularity is drying up because he's not on social media anymore. Yet, these idiots in the Republican Party still feel compelled to bow to his every whim. Sad, really sad. But let me ask you the question, why be a United States senator if you can't uphold your oath to protect the Constitution? America was attacked from within, and the Republican Party sided with the attackers. Now, the final vote was a disappointing 54 to 35. 60 votes were needed to overcome the filibuster. This is the first filibuster in this Congress, in case you're wondering. But 54 to 35, wait a minute, that's only 89 senators. 11 are missing. So who are the um, cowardly members who didn't want to cast their votes on the record? Hmm, good question. Let me tell you. Here's who didn't vote. Republicans. Republicans, Blackburn of Tennessee, Blunt of Missouri, Braun of Indiana, Burr of North Carolina. Really, Burr? Wow. Uh, Inhofe of Oklahoma, Rich of Idaho, Rounds of South Dakota, Shelby of Alabama, and Toomey of Pennsylvania. Toomey is particularly disappointing because he's one of the people who actually voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And he's retiring. What is his problem? With 54... Yes, votes, they needed six more. And I don't know that there were six among that caucus, but wait a minute, we're still too shy. Also not voting, Patty Murray of Washington, a Democrat. Really? Senator Murray, what was more important than this vote today? Seriously, I want to know what was more important than this vote today. And then the last one, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Just shameful shockingly shameful. Now, I expect nothing better from her, but really? Wow. Arizona, you got gaslighted. Unreal. So figure, in a perfect world, Patty Murray and Kirsten Cinema would have voted for it, so that's 56. They needed four more. Maybe they could have gotten to me. Maybe they could have gotten Burr, but I'm looking at the re- uh, in no, I'm looking at the rest of the list, and yeah, they couldn't get the ten votes. So maybe then that signals that it's time to get rid of the filibuster, which, by the way, does not exist in the Constitution. Somebody needs to sit down with Joe Manchin and teach him a bit of history because he obviously doesn't know. A reporter caught up with Joe Manchin Thursday night in the Capitol. And asked him if the Republicans filibuster the creation of this January 6th commission, would that be enough to get you to to get rid of the filibuster? In fact, here's the question and his answer. Would you be willing to break the filibuster in order to get this passed? I'm not ready to destroy our government. I'm not ready to destroy our government? 
That's what he said. I'm not ready to destroy our government. No, Senator Manchin, the Republicans did that. You're obviously not willing to save our government. And that's just about as bad. Now, I mentioned earlier that now Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell used undue influence, basically, to get his caucus to filibuster opening debate on forming this commission. Here's a report from CNN explaining what that pressure was about. He's taking arm twisting to a whole new level is Mm. what I'm being told, John. According to two Republican sources familiar with what's going on, look, we know that Mitch McConnell has been pressuring Republican senators to vote against the January 6th commission, as you said. But we are told that in the last 24 hours that McConnell has doubled down, started reaching out to particular senators he was afraid might be wavering, and asked them to vote against the commission, quote, as a personal favor, John. A personal uh, Jamie, favor. Jamie, it's not unprecedented. It actually happens frequently that a leader asks members of the caucus, Democrats and Republicans, I need this one. You have to take one for the team. But this is not any vote. This is not a budget vote. Nope. Uh, this is not to somebody get a committee assignment. This nope. is about an attack on the United States government. Exactly. Right. Uh, exactly right. And, and I'm told the senators were really caught by surprise at his using that kind of language wow. and just how insistent he's been. One Republican source said to me, quote, no one can understand why Mitch is going to this extreme of asking for a personal favor to kill the commission. The source went on to say, how can you have an attack on the Capitol? And the Republican leader is saying, vote against it. The source ended by saying it is despicable. And John, <laughs> that's, our, that's a our sources are suggesting that Mitch McConnell may really have been concerned that Mrs. Sicknick's visits today would sway some Republican senators. Well, I can't imagine that it, that, that it wouldn't. So what she's talking about there, Mrs. Sick, Sicknick is Gladys Sicknick. She is the mother of the uh, police officer Brian Sicknick, who was killed. Now, he was beaten and sprayed with with bear spray at the riot while he was trying to protect the Capitol, protect Mitch McConnell and his members from the rioters. He died the next day. He suffered a series of strokes. Now, the medical examiner wants to say it was not caused by the riot, I would um, give you my typical response to that, but I can't say it on the radio. But it starts with a B and an S. Gladys Sicknick did visit as many Republican senators on Thursday as would meet with her. Do you think you can change minds today? I hope so. I hope so. And Brian had a work ethic, like, second to none. And he was just there for for our country and for these guys. And... He just was doing his job, and he got caught up in it, and it's very sad. This is why I'm here today. I, you know, usually I stay in the background, and I just couldn't, I couldn't stay quiet anymore. Yeah, well, uh, according to CNN, 13 Republican senators declined to meet with her. And CNN also reported that although she met with more than a dozen of the Republicans, um, most told her that she would not be able to change their minds. One source 
said to be familiar with the meetings, told the, the network that they were, quote, very hard on Gladys Sicknick and her son's girlfriend, Sandra Garza, who were both wearing necklaces containing ashes from Brian Sicknick. The whole thing is just so distressing and unconscionable and disgusting. So they take the vote. I'm still reeling from the, the, the leaven that didn't vote. There's no excuse for that. Kirsten Cinema and Patty Murray? I really want to know what their excuse is. And as for the Republicans who were too chicken to vote, to cast their votes on the record, every last one of them deserves to be ousted from the Senate because they don't serve the public at all. They're just worried about protecting their own butts. When the vote ended, Chuck Schumer took to the Senate floor. The Republican minority just mounted a partisan filibuster against an independent commission to report on January 6th. Both, both efforts should have moved forward in a solidly bipartisan way. But out of fear or fealty to Donald Trump, the Republican minority just prevented the American people from getting the full truth about January 6th. The Republican minority just prevented the Senate from even debating the bill. No opportunity for amendments, no opportunity for debate. There was an attempt by the Republican minority to shunt this vote into the dark of night. But because of today's Senate time agreement, it was done in broad daylight. The American people will see how each Republican senator voted. Now, this should have been simple. The commission was bipartisan, independent, straight down the middle. House Democrats accepted every change that House leadership requested. Speaker Pelosi and I supported and still do support the changes Senator Collins proposed. And we told that to other senators. Senate Republicans for months publicly supported the idea of a commission. But now, all of a sudden, the Senate minority and the Senate minority leader waged a partisan filibuster against the bill. This vote has made it official. Donald Trump's big lie has now fully enveloped the Republican Party. Trump's big lie is now the defining principle of what was once the party of Lincoln. House Republicans canned Congresswoman Cheney for the crime of telling the truth that Joe Biden is president. Republican state legislatures seizing on the big lie are conducting the greatest assault on voting rights since the beginning of Jim Crow. Republicans in both chambers are trying to rewrite history and claim that January 6th was just a peaceful protest that got a little out of hand. And now this, a partisan blockade of a simple, independent, bipartisan commission. I've heard all the excuses why Republicans are opposing this bill. It's too early. It goes on too long. It's not needed. Almost all of these excuses are meritless and were invented in the past two weeks. We all know what's going on here. Senate Republicans chose to defend the big lie because they believe anything that might upset Donald Trump could hurt them politically. We've all lived through the horrors of January 6th. I was no further than 30 feet from those white supremacist hooligans. Do my Republican colleagues remember that day? Do my Republican colleagues remember the savage mob calling for the execution of Mike Pence, the makeshift gallows yep. outside the Capitol? I do. 
men with bulletproof vests and zip ties breaking into the Senate gallery and rifling through your desks. Police officers crushed between doorways. Shame on the Republican Party for trying to sweep the horrors of that day under the rug because they're afraid of Donald Trump. Our democracy has long endured because leaders of good faith, even if they disagreed even at political cost, shared a fidelity to the truth. Not so today. I hope this is not the beginning of an effort by Senate Republicans to prevent this chamber from debating reasonable, common-sense legislation. <laughs> no, they've been at that for a long see. time. After the state work period, I will bring forward legislation that would help provide equal pay for women. Yeah. Will sure. our Republican colleagues let the Senate debate the bill? No. Or will they engage in another partisan filibuster of urgent legislation? What do you we think? We will soon see. What do you think? We know the answer, don't we? And before we break and get on with the show, because this is obviously getting me angry, let me remind you of what some of the staunchest right-wing crazies said following the attack. All right, let's start with Mr. I-want-to-be-speaker-of-the-house himself, Kevin McCarthy. And actually, this wasn't even the night of the attack. This was a week later. A week later, Kevin McCarthy stood up on the House floor and said, The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept mm-hmm. his share of responsibility, quell the brewing unrest, and ensure President-elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. Yeah, like that was going to happen. But, but Kevin McCarthy said Donald Trump bears the responsibility for inciting this riot. Uh, Donald Trump sycophant Janine Pirro she was pretty adamant, too. I want to be clear. The actions at the United States Capitol three days ago were deplorable, reprehensible, outright criminal. Yeah. These frightening and repulsive actions represent the most significant breach on our Capitol in over 200 years. Yes. And I don't care what happened in the past or whether those who did it think the election was stolen. That is not justification. 75 million of us are still angry about the election, but we don't storm the Capitol. Hello. And stop looking for other people to blame, including those dirtbag terrorists, Antifa. (laughs) To those of you who did this, you did it of your own will, and you will be held accountable. No, I guess not. Take the veil of politics off, be totally objective, Anyone watching this must condemn it. Yeah, well, okay. And she goes on, but I can't, I can't listen to her voice any longer. Sorry about that. But that's Judge Janine Pirro. Those dirtbag terrorists, Antifa. All right, we'll, we'll save that for another day because you know that's nonsense, right? Okay, let me give you one more. <laughs> this man who's now once again, I guess, trying to sidle up to Donald Trump, but just days after the insurrection... This is what Chris Christie said. Yeah, listen, I think they're all going to have to vote their conscience and and look at what happened. I mean, what we had was an incitement yep. um, to riot at the United States Capitol. We had people killed. 
Uh, and to me, there's not a whole lot of question here. So, you know, so you think it was an impeachable offense for Jordan? Oh, sure. Yeah. And and, you'd vote to impeach. You know, in the. Well, that's if I think it's an impeachable offense, that's exactly what I would do, George. But I'm I'm not in there. All right. So that's that's enough of Chris Christie. Uh, He's now changing his public tune as well. What dirt does Donald Trump have on these people? And why are they so afraid of him? Why are they letting him control their lives and render one of our two main political parties inept? Well, they already were inept, but you know what I'm saying. I should mention the six Republicans who voted in favor of advancing the bill because they deserve our appreciation, frankly, for doing the right thing. And you shouldn't have to call out someone for doing the right thing. They should just do the right thing. But in this case, we have to cite Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy, Rob Portman, Lisa Murkowski, and Ben Sass. Those are the only six Senate Republicans with any bit of integrity whatsoever. It's a sad day. It is a really sad day. And now what has to happen is Nancy Pelosi has to form her own commission to investigate what happened on January 6th. And the Republicans will scream, it's a partisan witch hunt, because they said no to an independent commission. It's amazing. (sighs) And here we are. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to change gears. There's a brand new book out this week from a writer for The Atlantic, Edward Isaac Dover. And you know how every election cycle, there seems to be one book that emerges to tell the story of that campaign. Well, this time, it's Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Edward Isaac Dever, the author of that book, joins us next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today. I host the Nicole Sandler Show based at NicoleSandler.com. And yeah, filling in for Brad and Desi. It seems that after every presidential uh, election... One book comes out that encompasses what happened, like uh, that makes a big splash. Uh, Going back to, I remember, I'm dating myself, going back to the Clinton campaign in primary colors, Um, and there have been others. And it seems that this year, uh, looking back on the 2020 election and what preceded it, is the new book called Battle for the Soul, What Happened Inside Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Uh, Edward Isaac DeVere is our guest. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, you're, you're a writer for The Atlantic, and, and this is your first book, isn't it? 
it is my first book. It's uh, it's a strange experience. Uh, I'm used to writing newspaper articles or uh, magazine articles, and, and this is slightly longer, um, but I hope uh, uh, entertaining throughout. And uh, it's very kind of you put me in that company that you were at the beginning. I, I should say, Primary Colors, of course, is it was a novelization. Right. Of what was happening, That's true. Right. Um, right. But by uh, Joe Klein, who knew his way around things. Um, I often felt while writing this book that this was almost like a novel unfolding, that there was so much crazy stuff that was happening. So and and so many interesting characters and the humanity of these folks that that uh, was coming through and also the crisis that they were going through as Democrats and as I think all Americans were and just figuring out what we are and what we stand for and 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 what kind of country we're going to be and that was really uh, so much of it put on the line in this uh, in this election uh, it makes me think of uh, there's a quote in the book from Tom Hanks you know the great scholar of politics <laughs> um, but who uh, did a fundraiser for Joe Biden. Uh, that was virtual and it happened during that sort of weird virtual convention that the Democrats uh -huh. were having. And uh, on the Zoom call, he says uh, something like, you know, when you think about all these things that are going on, uh, all the economic crisis, public health crisis, uh, everything that George Floyd had already happened then, that he says that all of this is happening in an election year when we actually get to make a choice. Uh, it, it, he says, you know, makes you think like maybe there's something bigger going on. But I do think like whether or not you believe in his uh, theology of it, <laughs> um, that all of these things happened together in the election year is really insane. And it affected what the campaigns were. But, you know, George Floyd, uh, sadly, could have been killed any other year. There have been black men killed by police before mm -hmm. and since then. Um, right. The way that video was captured, the way it broke through. The pandemic obviously could have hit at any point. It happened to hit at the beginning of this and set off this uh, everything that it did through the economy and through public health and through uh, rethinking how things go with school and work and everything. All of that's going on. And then the crisis of democracy, you know, a lot of that is brought on by the way Donald Trump has acted sure. about the election. But, you know, that was also a long time coming in a way. And it, it was all put in front of voters last year. Uh, in a way that they could decide what to do. They made a decision, pretty definitive one by the popular vote. Uh, but you think about it, Joe Biden got the most votes ever for mm -hmm. president of the United States. Donald Trump got the second most That's votes right. ever for president of the United States. Right? And Donald Trump, in the end, is the greatest motivator to vote in human history. On both sides uh, of the voting, aisle. Right? Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so what the book tries to trace, so it's like, okay, so how, what was happening, right? Like I pick up this story from uh, never before reported details of Obama and Biden watching Trump win on election. Oh yeah, you, you start there. there. And I don't, let me. And, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I just got to no, say, go um, I felt my PTSD coming back again. <laughs> I start reading the book, and all of a sudden, I'm transported back to November third. Uh, 2016, and my November heart 8th, started racing. November 8th. Uh, on November eighth, sorry, November right? I, I got, <laughs> it's all around my birthday, but my heart started racing. I started getting that feeling in my stomach. It's like, oh my god, I remember this so clearly. And you take us back there, but to a scene that we hadn't been uh, privy to before, which is both Barack Obama and Joe Biden witnessing the the returns coming in and neither one was particularly paying that much attention at the beginning to the presidential returns because they figured it was a done deal. Yeah. Yeah, and and then you see the process that they go through 
in those immediate minutes as they start to see that it's mm-hmm. real and then in the hours and the days afterwards and then that picks up the story of what was going on in sort of three streams of the democratic party one the elected leaders and not really them because they were both then out of office but people like nancy pelosi and chuck mm-hmm. schumer and what was going on with it uh and, and more importantly then the, the two other streams are uh these players that many of them are not household names in the democratic party who very quietly started to get a plan together when nobody else when everybody was scrambled in the democratic party didn't know what to do they start meeting there's a, at the beginning of the book there's a dinner at john podesta's house uh, podesta who's the clinton campaign chairman had been a white house chief of staff for bill clinton and he they invites not even 10 people over for dinner and they're sitting around the table these people start to make a plan for what the party's gonna be but more importantly probably is this spontaneous reaction of activism to Trump's win among Democrats, uh, which is more than anything brought out in the Women's March. Now, I covered the Women's March in D.C. Um, I thought it would be like big, but I I got there. (laughs) I came out of Union Station from the the metro Mm -hmm. and I couldn't walk for a while. Like it took a while to get to where and I never even got to the stage that was supposed to be the center of it because there were too many people. Uh, And one of the people that I talked to for the book is Cecile Richards, who was at Planned Parenthood at the time. And she was one of those people who was uh, not at that dinner that night, but also working uh, behind the scenes in a lot of ways for Democrats. And she said to me, look, you know, if if there had been an organization that had tried to plan the Women's March, um, the amount of time and money it would have taken uh, is crazy, right? Like it never would have happened Mm -hmm. Um, and just happened on its own, not only in D.C., obviously, but all those women's marches all around the country. Uh, most, most definitely, the fact that it happened organically is yeah. pretty incredible. And seeing the, the the outcome, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. I mean, yeah. we part- I'm in South Florida, so we mm-hmm. went down to Miami. But it, it, you couldn't uh, – the, the thought of not going was not even a possibility. <laughs> we had to show up to say – this is not okay, and we're not going to let it happen again. So, right, and that's the day after Trump's inauguration. The that, day after you know, the inauguration, like that, right? Right now, Isaac, you mentioned the dinner. The dinner. This yeah. was after um, uh, Donald Trump's victory that they yes. regrouped to say, "Okay, yeah. we got to stop this." Cecile Richards, you said, wasn't there, but she was part of this planning group. Because she, there were, it was not like there was like a formal process, right. like the, right. you know, a hierarchy or whatever. There were people. She's one of the better known names, probably, of that kind of person, right? Who's not an elected leader, but very involved. Look at that dinner that night. A name who has uh, become more familiar to people, especially with what happened with her nomination uh, by Biden. But Neera Tanden was there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Randy Weingarten, the head of the teachers union, oh. was there. Uh, Guy Cecil, the the head of the priorities uh, super PAC, was mm-hmm. there. Those are the type of people who look. At, maybe to your listeners, they're more known names, and but I think sure. to most Americans, they're uh, they're not really. And but they're they are the people who were saying, okay, what do we do? Right, but what also in that group were uh, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Chris Coons, Terry McAuliffe. Right. So, so, oh, so, th- so that's a different. Oh, that's dinner, a different. That's dinner. an important dinner. Ah, that dinner okay. happens um, uh, in in the end of 2018. So that happens after the Democrats have won the midterms. Okay. And that happens. It's like when I found out about this, and I'll tell you, Nicole, I actually haven't said this to people before. The way that I found out about that dinner is I happened to be meeting someone for a drink at the Four Seasons Hotel, mm-hmm. which is at the edge of Georgetown, Washington. And as I'm waiting, the person was a little late. And as I'm waiting, I start to see people coming out of a room, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Chuck Schumer, Uh um, others like that. 
Um, and uh, and I thought, what's happening? <laughs> well, insight to how the reporting can sometimes be fortuitous, right? Uh, and it was this meeting. It was the day that oh, Pelosi that was... had been like formally elected speaker. Right. So it was after the midterms when the Democrats yes, exactly. took back the House. Um, and it. so she comes in and they applaud for And But then it's all it's like big Democratic donors had arranged it uh, and brought in a bunch of the big Democratic leaders. Also, they, Terry McAuliffe was there, the uh, former governor of Virginia, now running mm-hmm. again. Uh, a, a number of other people, Pete Buttigieg was there, Eric Swalwell. It was sometimes like some of them were obvious and some of it was like, this is the, why are we here? Um, and the meetings is going on and on. And basically what it was, was <clears throat> big Democratic donors uh, who wanted the leaders to figure out how to not have a messy primary because they were worried about it uh, for two reasons. They didn't want to have a messy primary because they wanted to beat Trump. They also didn't want to have a messy primary because they thought that that would benefit Bernie Sanders. And they didn't want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee anyway. And they also thought he would lose to Trump. So like that's all going on there. And like, it's really, you'd think that this is out of a movie, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that there actually is a room of Democrats that sat there and plotted how to do this. And at one point, someone says, well, maybe we can try to get it so that the candidates don't attack each other in the primary <laughs> campaign. And Terry McAuliffe stands up and he goes, good f- luck with that. You know? <laughs> and, and of course, like, any primary campaign it, it would be like that. But there was such a worry about this. And, you know, they, they don't get a resolution that night about what to do. And most of the people in the meeting are like, why are we even here? And one of the people who was there, Guy Cecil said to me afterwards, that was the last moment when the people who thought that they were in charge uh, tried to be in charge. Because after that, you know, it's only a couple of weeks after that, that Elizabeth Warren announces her, uh, I guess it was an exploratory committee, but obviously mm-hmm. her campaign. Sure. Uh, and then very quickly, like she announces on New Year's Eve and uh, with it, by the end of January, you have, a lot of other candidates, including Kamala Harris, announcing right at the end of the month. Right. But what gets me, and, and I apologize, I just got the book, so I'm only a couple of chapters into it. I can't put it down. I, I mean, you're enjoying I, it. Well, I am. <laughs> when I woke up, as I do tend to do at 2.30 in the morning, instead of turning on the TV, I read until I fell back asleep. So but so I'm only just beginning, but I'm, I'm reading a lot. There's obviously, you've been written about a lot. Um, in fact, I'll get to what the New York Post did today in a moment. But first, um, back to this meeting. It's see, and I, I come from a progressive place. I, I'm a talk show host. I'm not a journalist. You're you're an objective journalist. So I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. And getting this, seeing in black and white that they did it again after 2016, where or they try well, but they did because yeah. we, we have to go later to Jim Clyburn. Yeah. They did it yeah. again. Yeah. They worked. They they colluded. I'll use that word to make sure that Bernie Sanders didn't get the nomination. Now I got to say, in hindsight, I'm not sure that Bernie would have won in 2020. <laughs> I think he would have won in 2016. In hindsight, though, I'm not sure he would have won in 2020. But that's neither here nor there. The fact is, they got together to say, what do we do about the Bernie Sanders problem? When Bernie Sanders, to my mind, is the one who motivated thousands of people to get involved. They didn't take them from other candidates. These are people who were not not involved in the electoral process at all because they thought their vote didn't count or it didn't matter or it it was all fixed anyway. He got them involved. And I really think without Bernie pushing, Joe Biden perhaps wouldn't have won. 
I mean, the, the what ifs are, are hard to yes, do here. They really are. So many things that went into this. But uh, like, I can tell you a lot of people who worked on Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020 think he still would have won in 2020. Uh-huh. It, it's hard. He it's hard have. to see exactly right. that, given the voters that were turned on for Biden, what the yeah. margins were. Um, in a couple of states that could have given Trump the Electoral College. But you are absolutely right. There was, <laughs> they were not very shy about it behind closed doors of trying to stop Bernie Sanders from being the nominee. Again, I think there are two streams of this going on. One is a distaste for Bernie Sanders' politics mm-hmm. among uh, a lot of Democrats. Um, and uh, one, uh, and the other is uh, a fear that he would have lost to Trump. And there's also a personal element for some of them too. people who haven't gotten over the 2016 campaign certainly hadn't then. And who just like, no, no Bernie Sanders, but all those things were combining. And there, there was absolutely an effort among Democrats to stop him from being the nominee. And look, he came very close to being the nominee. I know. And I I think, and one of the things that I trace in the book that you'll get to is that uh, there, there was a week when it was, happening when yeah. it, it was almost done um <laughs> and uh the sanders campaign screwed it up and it slipped right out of their fingers is it was uh, it at the, d- the debate moment them. was it the debate moment when he it, said the, the moment when he said i only need a plurality yes that i you so, don't need a majority you need a plurality plura- yeah that's plurality. sort of the start of it right um and people uh, his friend uh larry cohen uh who uh runs now that he's the the uh, I think it's the chair uh, of uh, that group, Our Revolution. Right. He was a communication workers of America. And and he was uh, he worked on the Sanders campaign in 16. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's very close to me. He says that's the stupidest thing Bernie ever said. Um, And but it's it's a couple of things that happen right then um, that that Sanders says that sort of aggravate people who are already uh, very worried about him being the nominee. And there is this turn against him. And I'm not sure if it hadn't been Sanders as the alternative that the Biden campaign would have revived quite in the way that it had, but it was, I mean, that's the way life goes, the way campaigns do. Uh, And then there are like specific screw ups that happen with the Sanders campaign. Um, One of them was probably Sanders himself being uh, really like brushing Jim Clyburn off completely over the years and not doing anything Mm -hmm. to build up that relationship. Another sort of uh, coincidentally, essentially that, they wanted Jesse Jackson to endorse Sanders before South Carolina. And as I trace in the book, they, the problem was that Jesse Jackson didn't want to pick between Warren and Sanders. And oh, so man. with both of them still in the race, he says, I got to sit it out for right now. Wow. Um, and I've got him on the plane with Ro Khanna, the congressman from California. Uh, they were both flying to South Carolina. And Khanna, who is one of Sanders' co-chairs, in the right. campaign, like, come on, can we get this to happen? It would really make a difference. And Jackson was like, no, I can't do it. Um, and Jackson, of course, did endorse Sanders. But by the time he endorsed him, it was, it was too basically late. done. Wow. That's, and that's the shame because Bernie Sanders famously endorsed uh, Jesse Jackson back when he sure. ran. Um, I mean, that was obviously that was when he was the mayor of Burlington and for a right, campaign that still. was in a different place. But yes. Um, and, you know, Sanders feels very deeply connected to Jesse Jackson and sees his own political work as a continuation of of what Sanders, of what Jackson was doing. Uh, but, you know, Jackson is a political player himself. Of course. Uh, right, obviously. And and there were, this is one of many, many factors that were going to this campaign. When you look at this, it's like, it could seem, oh, this all just happened. No, it did this happen. There are a lot of things going on on the surface. A, a lot. And that's what I tried to trace throughout this book. Right. But of course, for, for the um, 
even more than casual observer like me, the, the political junkies, we saw Jim Clyburn say, hell no, Bernie Sanders yeah. is not getting this nomination. And he, it, 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 for what it appeared, we know it wasn't single-handedly, but it sure looked that way, turned everything upside down on the eve of Super Tuesday, got everybody, Pete Buttigieg, to, to drop out on before the Super Tuesday votes. It just, it's yeah. unheard of. And well, it was, I mean, the chapter in the book uh, about South Carolina and Super Tuesday is titled 72 Hours of Changed History. Wow. And that's because it did, it right? It did. Um, and I was in South Carolina that week reporting on it. Uh, so the, remember, the, the schedule is that uh, the Nevada caucuses are on a Saturday. And then uh, the following Saturday is uh, South Carolina primary. Mm -hmm. And then three days later, Tuesday is Super Tuesday. Right. So it all happens very quickly. And that South Carolina Super Tuesday is the fastest part of it. That's the 72 hours. But you see what happens in that week of Clyburn deciding to come out. Uh, Biden had done well enough in the Nevada caucuses that he says, OK, I'm going to endorse you. He throws it in as big as he can for Biden. But even Clyburn is surprised at how big of a difference it makes for Biden, how there's this reverberating effect. For example, there was a meeting that uh, Pete Buttigieg was supposed to have with a bunch of mayors um, in South Carolina. It's the mayor or whatever. It was not an endorsement event. It was just like a photo op. It would have been good for Buttigieg to have. They were willing to do it. Those mayors, after Clyburn endorsed it, you know what? We're going to cancel, right? Wow. Like it's just, it was more than the endorsement itself. It just really blew up. Uh, and uh, simultaneously, you have some uh, bigger pieces that were moving. I reported in the book that Al Sharpton was talking to Bernie Sanders backstage, saying to him, I'm ready to endorse <gasps> you. I just have to go back to my board at the National Action Network and get it to work. And then, he, then Sharpton finds out this obviously would have been important before the South Carolina yes. primary too, right? Yeah. Uh, and Sharpton finds out that Clyburn's going to endorse, and he says, "You know what? I'm not going up against Clyburn." Oh And so he doesn't God. do it. He never. So, but just think, um, so you, if if Sharpton and Jackson had gotten on board with Bernie and and went up against Clyburn, this could have changed everything, couldn't it? It could have changed everything. I think. Look, as I said, the what ifs are hard to do. Yes. I think what likely would have happened is that Biden still would have won South Carolina, mm -hmm. but it would not have been probably that resounding a victory. Biden gets 50% of the vote. Yeah. Sanders gets a lower percentage in 2020 in South Carolina than he did in 2016. And that's why it's like, oh, I guess Biden's like steamrolling here. And because black voters, a huge part of the electorate in South Carolina and a huge part of the electorate for the Democratic Party are, uh, are, are what's powering Biden, that makes a big difference to him. And, and there's a, a former state representative named Fletcher Smith that I talked to the night before the South Carolina primary at the end of a Biden event. And he said to me, you know, sometimes white people need black people to tell them what to, to make them see what they should do. Um, and he's very frank about it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, whether or not he's right about that. As a yeah, but it's, it's not all he black was, people. It, right. But it, it's still it's the whole thing is still astounding. It just it's not like South Carolina was going to vote for the Democrat. You know, when it right. comes when push comes to shove in November, when it counts, those electoral college votes from South Carolina were going to go to Donald Trump. Right. So the Wasn't fact close. that this turned it around is mind blowing. Um, and you see in the book also that like the Biden campaign didn't realize what they had on their hands. He is uh, three days later on Tuesday, on Super Tuesday in the afternoon in Los Angeles. And he's at a restaurant, a chicken and waffles restaurant. Oh, in, uh, Roscoe's? Roscoe's? I know it well. Um, <laughs> I lived in LA um, for a long time, yeah. At, right, and he's and he's working the crowd. Of course, this is right pre-pandemic, so everybody's crowded. And he's there with uh, Karen Bass, the congresswoman mm -hmm. from LA, and Eric Garcetti, the mayor. 
Uh, and while they're there, of course, it's Pacific time. So while they're there, Massachusetts uh, gets called because the polls close at seven. Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren's home state I gets know. called and it gets called for Biden, gets right. called right away. And they're like, what is happening? And that's when they start to get the sense that this night is going to go much better for them than they expected. But they're even as the results come in, right? Because another thing that's going on there is Mike Bloomberg's campaign. Remember that? It's all oh, chapter of the book yes. for a reason, <laughs> um, even though most people don't Would prefer really to forget remember it. it now. <laughs> right. But if you, it played a really important role in what happened. But, uh, Bloomberg's campaign collapses very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, this rush of support to Biden. There's a rush away from Sanders. Uh, as you point out, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, all endorse uh, Biden uh, right before, the night before Super, Super Tuesday. Tuesday. It's just this momentum that starts to pick up for Biden that's so fast that nobody can even make sense of it. And it's funny, there, there are, it's a 500-page book. There's a lot in there. But I feel like I could have written uh, 200 pages of it just in detailing all the different twists and turns of what happened then. It's not 200 pages there. It's right. uh, maybe like 20 pages. Right. No, but you could have. There's a whole, there's a movie there. There's a yeah. big story. There's a lot there. And uh, frankly, I'm surprised. Edward Isaac DeVore, that that your book, as far as I know, is really the first look at what the Democrats battled through the, for the four years to get to 2020 and to win. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether they won the soul, I don't know. Um, although I got to tell you that here we are. Well, if I had if we were talking two weeks ago, even you would have heard me say how I, I've never been happier to have been so wrong because Joe Biden is, you know, presiding over the nation as a as a progressive. He's yeah. doing so much of what I never thought he would do and and surprising me. Although I got to say in the last week or two, I've used this analogy too often. So I apologize to my listeners. But it's the new administration smell is starting to wear off. <laughs> right? Well, I would just caution you to not make any judgments, positive or negative or whatever, about what this administration is, probably for a couple more months sure. to start to see what it actually really looks like. And you may love it and you may hate it. I don't know. You'll you'll make that decision. Uh, but look, when I was I talked to Biden, I did an interview with him. Uh, that was his first interview as president. Uh, we were talking. He was in the Oval Office. I was over the phone because it was still heavy COVID restrictions. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, two things that you might be interested in came up in that interview. First of all, um, at the beginning of the interview, I said to him, and I've covered Biden for years, and um, uh, that's that means that I, I have a relationship with him. I sure. know him. He knows me. Um, and I said to him, so, you know, uh, uh, this book, we played around with a couple of titles and we finally just landed, uh, of course, this is after the riot and everything, uh -huh. we, we landed, we're, uh -huh. we're going to call it Battle for the Soul. And it felt, excuse me, seeing what the book looked like in the end, uh, that that was the right title for it. And, you know, Biden has this very uh, short, sarcastic sense of humor. And so it actually like warmly, but it sounded, he was being sarcastic about it. He goes, yeah, you know, the difference between you and me, pal, is I actually believe it. <laughs> and I yeah. said to him, you know, actually, I think you may have been onto something with the mm. battle for the soul stuff. Uh, and uh, and the other thing that uh, that came up though is, you know, he uh, he said to me, he was reflecting on how people had counted him out at the beginning of the race. Said things like, I personally wrote that people were saying he was out of sync with the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. There were much rougher ways that other people would talk about it. Uh, and, and he said to me, you know, I'm going to say something outrageous. Well, not that outrageous. I'm the most progressive person who's ever been president. And he said it like that on purpose. Okay, so that's a brushback, uh, not just to Bernie Sanders, 
but, but Barack, Barack Obama. Obama. Absolutely. And he want, his point is, and I reflect on this in the in writing up the, the interview that I did with him, is that Joe Biden is aware that his presidency is in part a function of Donald Trump in that he was a reaction to it and, and it was about getting Trump out and that primary voters were counting on him to get. And he's aware that his presidency is in part a function of Barack Obama and being elevated to be his vice president, connection with black voters. But he's determined to not let that be his only place in history. He wants to be in that interview with me. He points out the portrait of Franklin Roosevelt mm-hmm. he has hanging over the fireplace in the Oval Office. That's who he sees now as his uh, North Star. And that's what he's going for. Good. I hope I hope he keeps that burned into his mind because that's what we need right now. Um, the book goes into I know from what I've read and what I've read not in the book uh, a lot about Obama. Um, yeah. I have I've got so I've got a million questions for you. I can't read, wait to read the rest of it. So Isaac, I hope that once I'm done reading, that you'll come back and we can have another uh, conversation about. It. I know you have to run to for an event at the Atlantic. Uh, yeah, so I'm, gonna, I'm sorry about that. I, no I'd worries. Love to come back. I hope you enjoy the book. There is a lot in there about Obama. I think what you'll see about Obama is that contrary to what was the popular conception of him over the Trump years of being detached and not caring what's going on, you'll see uh, there's been some attention to the language that I report him using, but really what the context of that language of how uh, keyed in he was to what was going on, how distressed he was by it, how upset he was by it, and what it was that was really setting him off. And in a process that I think you'll see tracks with what was going on for a lot of the country and certainly for a lot of Democrats, getting more and more upset to the point that when he was campaigning for Biden into the fall, it was America is in the balance. And not the way that politicians say, like, this is the most important election ever, but for right. real. And that's the way uh, Obama felt about it. Well, it was. And there's a but there, which is the, the shape he left the party in. And I guess we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll end there and pick that up. Yeah when we reconvene, uh, which I can tell I'll, I'll be reading this book. So um, I will be back in touch. Edward Isaac Dover. You can read him at The Atlantic, of course, but definitely check out the new book, Battle for the Soul, What Happened Inside Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Thank you for writing this. Thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Nicole. I appreciate you having me. Edward Isaac Dover. I have mixed feelings about that because I really don't want to relive that time again. But we need to remember what transpired so it doesn't repeat again. And thankfully, it's very well written. And we know all the players. My goodness, we lived through it. All right. We'll take one more quick time out and come back and stick a fork in it. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi while they deal with the construction noises around their studio. Hopefully, they will be back in time for the next show. Fingers crossed. So, we only have a few minutes left. I figure I covered the big story of the day. Let's get on with the rest of the news. I struggled with whether or not to even cover this story, but the crazy is dangerous. So, this is a warning that with reasonable Republicans 
going extinct, this is what we're going to be left with. And that should scare the hell out of you. Congressman, who shouldn't be in Congress any longer, Matt Gates, appeared next to another congressman who shouldn't be in office any longer, Marjorie Taylor Greene. They appeared together at a Georgia rally Thursday night that was just sickening. Green put on a mocking Mexican accent at one point, and Gates, who apparently learned nothing from the, the events of January 6th, spouted off about armed rebellion. Seriously. After whining about conservatives being canceled, he went on to talk about the Second Amendment. All the fake news media, the Second Amendment is not about, it's not about hunting, it's not about recreation, it's not about sports. The Second Amendment is about maintaining within the citizenry the ability to maintain an armed rebellion against the government if that becomes necessary. I hope it never does, but it sure is important to recognize the founding principles of this nation and to make sure that they are fully understood. It would be funny if it weren't so frightening that Matt Gates thinks his little gun is going to protect him from the power of the military of the United States. Right. But wait, as they say, there's more. The Internet's hall monitors out in Silicon Valley, they think they can suppress us, discourage us. Maybe if you're just a little less patriotic, maybe if you just conform to their way of thinking a little more, that you'll be allowed to participate in the digital world. Well, you know what? Silicon Valley can't cancel this movement or this rally or this congressman. We have a second amendment in this country and I think we have an obligation to use it. He really said that out loud, Matt Gates. But is he really advocating for people to take their guns to the big tech companies in Silicon Valley? Because that's what it sounds like to me. And I'm thinking the FBI needs to get involved. There's some serious crazy going on there. And, and really, why is this man still in Congress? Florida man, indeed. But Matt Gates isn't the only one of that breed making me crazy. The governor, Ron DeSantis, said Thursday that celebrity cruise lines requirement that 95% of all passengers over 16 be fully vaccinated, quote, violates the spirit of an executive order he issued barring vaccine passports, as well as a state law that goes into effect July 1st. So if the cruise line, which is part of the Royal Caribbean Group, follows through, DeSantis says they'll be subject to a fine of $5,000 for each customer asked to show their vaccination status. Wow. So the standoff is hanging over celebrities' plan for late June sailings for paying customers that will be the first in the United States after 15 months of a shutdown. The CDC requires that 95% of cruise ship passengers and 98% of crew members be fully vaccinated on non-volunteer cruises, and celebrities said it plans to stick with those rules. Ron DeSantis, like the orange guy he idolizes, said that the rules don't apply to him. They do. Oh, I forgot to tell you about President Biden's trip to the ice cream parlor. Biden, on Thursday, was in, I want I, I forget where he was. I want to say Pennsylvania, but I, I could be mistaken about that. But he went to an ice cream shop. Yeah, Joe Biden got a cone, schmoozed with the crowd, you know, did his thing with his sunglasses on. And well, 
after somebody asked him what flavor he got, another reporter asked him a serious question. Chocolate, chocolate chip. Eat some chocolate, chocolate yeah. chip. Yeah. <laughs> 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 on a commission? I, I think it's. I can't imagine anyone voting against the establishment of a commission on the greatest assault since the Civil War on the, on the Capitol. Okay, I can't imagine it either, but that's what happened. And it kind of makes sense when you look at who we're dealing with. I'm going to play you one last um, a montage of sorts put together by CNN. As Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene were speaking at their rally in Georgia, former Speaker of the House, the last Republican to have that position, Paul Ryan, was also delivering a speech. Paul Ryan, the guy who did too little too late, is trying to be on the right side of history now. So, courtesy of our friends at CNN, here's a mashup. It's Paul Ryan, Matt Gates, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And of course, a few of their <clears throat> fans. Once again, we conservatives find ourselves at a crossroads. Taking advice on party building from Paul Ryan would be like taking advice on how to interact with your in-laws from Meghan Markle. If the conservative cause depends on the populist appeal of one personality or of second-rate imitations, then we're not going anywhere. This is Donald Trump's party, and I'm a Donald Trump Republican. It was horrifying to see a presidency come to such a dishonorable and disgraceful end. We've got to clear something up. Who won the presidential race on November 3rd for Georgia? Voters looking for Republican (laughs) leaders want to see independence and medal. Would it not be better for Republican politicians, for Republican supporters to move on and to look forward, even to look forward and ahead to Trump running in 2024 instead of keep on looking backward? No, because we think this was too great of a crime and we just can't let it go. We're not going to let it go. They will not be impressed by the sight of yes men and flatterers flocking to Mar-a-Lago. You know, Nazis were the National Socialist Party, just like the Democrats are now a National Socialist Party. You don't oh my need God, to she did it again. A lot of people don't like green. That's okay, because you know what? A lot of people didn't like Jesus Christ. (laughs) Sometimes these skirmishes are just creations of outraged peddlers detached from reality and not worth anybody's time. Um, Actually, I don't know exactly what was said. Uh, that uh, about the Holocaust as to what she said. Oh, my goodness. She compared COVID restrictions to the Holocaust. Well, um, (laughs) I can understand that with Mengele, the Nazi, and how he used uh, children and people to experiment with experimental drugs. So you're talking about the vaccine? Yes. Oh, man. That, my friends, is some serious crazy And if we don't do something to change the course of this nation and take the power away from the QGP or the GQP or whatever we're calling them now, we're in big trouble and we're out of time. So maybe we can all unplug for a little while. And hopefully when you come back, Brad and Desi will be here too. Thanks for hanging with me. I'm Nicole Sandler. Find me at NicoleSandler.com when I'm not here guest hosting the Bradcast. I'll leave you with the immortal words of Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>